0: The rich doctrine, and uh, that is a hymn that's that's been around for a long time, but it's just recently kind of been uh, brought back up again and, and being sung again uh, in our churches. And uh, what a what a great hymn that is! John chapter number eight. We looked last week at the first part of this message, I entitled "Sons of Abraham." Sons of Abraham, and I mentioned last week a, a song that some of us maybe. Uh, saying as we were growing up, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord and then we hold out our hands and hold out our feet and all that, and we had a lot of fun with that song, but there's, there's again, once again, there's a, a little bit of, uh, of truth, a simple truth in that song in that if we truly know Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we're truly born again, we are a son of Abraham in the spiritual sense. And I know that there is the physical blessing, we spent some time uh, on that uh, last week, there is the, the physical lineage, the Jews, sons of Abraham, children of Abraham, something that the Jews, even those who were in uh, antagonism toward, toward Christ, in opposition to Christ, even they were, were, were holding great pride in their physical lineage of being a Jew, of being a child of Abraham, and Jesus was trying to make a spiritual application. That you're not a true child of Abraham if you don't know me as your Savior. If you have not trusted in me. You are maybe physically a Jew and yes, you are a child of Abraham in the physical sense, in the biological sense. But the appeal was for them to be a spiritual son of Abraham. That those who know Christ as their Savior, those who have trusted Christ, who have put their faith in Christ as Abraham did, who put his faith in Christ and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Justification. Those are the true children, the spiritual children of Abraham. And we as believers, as born again Christians, we are children of Abraham in that sense. More so I should say, as well, as Abraham was a child of God, those who trust Christ as their Savior, yes, a child of Abraham, but more importantly, a child of God. As we read in John 1, as many as believed him, to them gave he power, the authority, to be called a child of God, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And that's what Jesus is ultimately trying to bring them to, to that place where they recognize their sin, their need for repentance, and put their faith and trust in Him and receive forgiveness for their sin. And there was some that had been saved. There were a few groups already that we have uh, talked about as we've been studying through the book of John, a few groups that have trusted Christ. But now, once again, this antagonistic group has taken over the conversation, and they continue to question Jesus. So we looked last week at that mistaken identity. focusing They were focusing on their physical lineage as sons of Abraham, and Jesus was trying to get them to look at the spiritual and become a child of Abraham spiritually by trusting Christ as their Savior, as Abraham did. That was the mistaken identity. But then we came down to verse... Verses 44 and 45 and on, and we see this this this, this change or this, this this focus now from this antagonistic group, and there becomes these malicious attacks. There there's a, a, a malice to their questioning, to their attacks. They will attack his character. Uh, they they will attack his 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 lineage, his upbringing, uh, in referring to him even. Uh, as, or implying that he was a son of fornication, a Samaritan, or having a demon. They, they question his authority. There, there's these malicious attacks, and we'll look, Lord willing, today, in the, the little bit of time that we have, as I, I want to uh, finish in time to be able to have the, the, the business meeting and be able to have some time, obviously, for that at the end of our service. But we'll, we'll look at Christ's response and how he responds with compassion and boldness and with the truth. But again, we go back to John 8 and to verse 44, where Jesus says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Ultimately, their unbelief, demonstrated that they were children of the devil. As we looked at last week, the the word devil here is the word that means slanderer or accuser. Again, this Unitarian Universalist idea that we are all the children of God and we're all on some path up the mountain to reach God and we're all just going to get there just by different paths. That is a lie. That is a deception. From Satan. And Jesus blows that lie up. He deals with it very clearly, very boldly, very plainly. He says, Ye are of your father, the devil. He does not hold back. He speaks with compassion, with meekness, but he speaks the truth. This is a bold statement. He says, You are actually children of the slanderer, children of the accuser. Satan slanders and blasphemes God and his son and his word and his followers. And you are doing the same. Your words, your actions show that you are a child of the devil. You are behaving like the devil. The devil is a murderer. He's a liar. He's the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. Is it no doubt then as we see our culture push God away, reject God and his word, reject his son, Jesus Christ, is there, is there not any doubt then as to why we have in our culture a culture of death and violence and of lies and deception? Is, is there no wonder why we have so much violence and, and so much death and a wrong understanding and a confusion and a bewilderment And a despondency and a despair about death. When our world has pushed God and his word out. When we don't have it in our families. We're not committed in our homes. In our places of institution and recreation. And our employers. When we have to deal with cancel culture and woke culture. Whatever you want to call it as we push God out, as we eliminate God from our lives, as we go our own way and do our own thing, then the culture of death and of lies and deception is going to take over. Because that is the world system. Because Satan is a murderer from the beginning. And he's the father of lies. They refuse Christ. They, in this group, these, the Jews, as we refer to them as, this antagonistic group, this group in opposition to Christ, and really, in, in, in a way, anyone who lives in a state of unbelief, rejecting Christ, they, they refuse to accept his truth. And in refusing to believe, in refusing to accept Jesus and who he is, as the Bible declares, as he himself declares in the word of God, as God has declared in his word who Christ is, those who reject Christ, they remain in that state of condemnation. They live out their lives as a child Of the devil. But that's not how Christ wants us to remain. And for those of us, hopefully that's all of us in here, are truly born again, are truly saved individuals. We have been delivered from that father of death. That devil. We have been delivered out from under his power and his bondage and out from under that condemnation. We have been justified. We are no longer condemned. We are in Christ Jesus. And that's what Christ is. That's his message to these people who, yes, many of them are antagonistic and in opposition. But we know already there have been some who have been saved. And Christ is appealing not just to those who are persecuting him, but also to those who are in the crowd, who are in the audience, who are listening, who might repent of their sin and place their faith in him. Notice in verse 45, where we left off last week, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Your rejection of the truth causes you to reject the things that I am saying. You are showing yourself to be an unbeliever, because you will not accept me and the truth that I tell you. But he goes down in verse 46, and he says, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? Now Christ makes a very, very bold claim here. This is a claim by Jesus that he is sinless. This is not just a claim of innocence from a legal violation that would put him in jail, put him in prison, that would cause him to be in violation of some law. No, this is Christ saying, I am sinless. This is a declaration of Christ's deity. Who would make such a claim that he or she is absolutely without sin? Think about that claim. That's very bold. That either makes Christ a false teacher, a liar, a lunatic, or he is truly the Son of God. Think about some of the false teachers of the past and some of the claims that they have made about the return of, of, of Christ or the Messiah or whatever entity they might refer to the supernatural or the superior being that they are, are worshiping or supposedly going to be going to. You've, you've heard some of these false teachers make these bold predictions. They've claimed to be the Messiah. They've claimed to be this or that or the other. And they've all proven to be charlatans, to be liars, to be lunatics, to be immoral, reprobate individuals. When you really dig down deep and you find out, some of them are very good at hiding and covering up. But when you really dig down deep, you find many of these false uh, teachers are full of all kinds of immorality and wickedness. And they're covering up all sorts of sin and licentiousness. But they make all these bold claims about their superiority. Jesus makes a very bold claim. He's made many claims already, but once again, he brings them back to his deity. He is sinless because he is truly the Son of God. Their unbelief sadly deafened their ears. It blinded their eyes to the truth and reminds us of what 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. Now, it doesn't mean that every person who trusts Christ as their Savior immediately understands everything about the Bible in its fullest sense. I'm thankful for the years that I have been saved over, uh, really, 40 years now. Uh, and, 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 I, and I say that with, with all praise and glory to God. But 40 years means that there should be some evidence of some growth and some knowledge. There, there should be some evidence that I have Developed in my Christian walk and, and, and I'm thankful for the training that I received and growing up in a Christian home and, and going to a Christian school and going to Bible college and seminary. I'm thankful for that. So that's a big responsibility. I have a lot of accountability before God, but every believer when they get saved has to grow and develop in their knowledge of God. So the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man can recognize creation, can recognize a certain morality or a, a, a moral uh, way in which we should live, can understand a basic right and wrong. There's a very, very famous, I, shouldn't, I don't know if I'd call him famous, but a very popular podcaster. If I mentioned his name, you would immediately recognize, most of us would probably recognize him. He has a morality about his life. He is fascinating to listen to. He is an intellectual giant. He knows religion. He has even series that teach about the Bible. And he has incredible insight. But he is an unsaved man. He is this close to understanding the truth regarding Jesus Christ. But to him it is still intellectual. It is still a fascinating subject. It makes sense. Because the Bible does make sense. It speaks to reality. God is a God of order. God is a God of logic. So Christianity makes sense. It makes sense of the world. It makes sense of reality. And it makes sense of our spiritual condition. And this is a very popular podcaster. He would be considered a very conservative individual. Fascinating to listen to. But he doesn't have spiritual discernment. He comes so close when he talks about family. He talks about the male role model in society and how we need masculine men. Praise God. We need fathers who are committed and lead their homes in in, in the right things. I, I agree with him. But he still comes short of the glory of God because he won't recognize and submit truly, completely to Christ as his Savior, to the Bible as the supreme authority for Redemption of our souls. Again, not that there's anything wrong with listening to the man. Not that there isn't anything that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot that I would agree with him about. But he's an unsaved man. He still has a lack of spiritual discernment. That intellectual knowledge doesn't save. There's religious leaders in this group who are persecuting Jesus. They have great knowledge of the Old Testament. They are intellectual but they're unsaved and they're actually in antagonism and opposition in trying to persecute and murder Jesus Christ. Christ declares his sinlessness. And then they go further and they attack his character in verse 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a, d- a, a, a devil. To use the word Samaritan would, would be to attack him for his upbringing, for his lineage, for how he was born, obviously we know that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born yes to the the, the the Virgin Mary. It doesn't make her the mother of God. She was a sinner who needed to be saved. She gave birth physically to Christ, but she herself had to come to Christ in salvation. She had to be saved. Yes, he was born in to a virgin, to a virgin, to the Virgin Mary. It was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but there was a lie that was even spread in the first century about Jesus maybe being the child of fornication, of being Ill- illegitimate. There was that lie. Again, that has even continued even to the 21st century. It's even popularized in a certain book or in certain places of the internet. Okay, but they go into this idea of him being a Samaritan. Maybe he is a half breed. Maybe he is one of those racial minorities who we consider subservient, who we consider not the same level as a Jew. To call him a Samaritan was a derogatory term. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds who had intermarried with the Assyrians. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile, and they were repulsive to the Jews. Remember Jesus in John 4 had witnessed to the Samaritan woman and he overcame those racial barriers and those cultural barriers and those ethnic barriers to reach her with the gospel and she got saved. The gospel was for the Samaritans for the Gentiles as well as the Jews but they were calling him a Samaritan as a derogatory term and then they go so far as to say he had a devil. He had a demon. They are now resorting to blasphemy in their attack on his character. There is a pride here, an ethnic and a spiritual pride among these religious leaders, among this group. They had a bias and they had a prejudice that was part of their blind, their spiritual blindness. And Christ then in turn, verses 49 through 51, defends his character. He answers again, I am not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me, and I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see Death. First of all, Christ said he honors his father. They were dishonoring him, he says, implying that by dishonoring him, they were dishonoring the God who they claimed to serve. Jesus was once again equating himself with God. He was speaking to his deity. To dishonor him was to dishonor God the Father, who they claimed to be loyal to. He goes on and he says God would vindicate his character. Because it is God that seeks and that judges. Verse 50. Jesus, again, makes another bold statement. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. He is saying, God is my judge. And he will declare me to be his son. Deity. The God-man. He appeals to God as his witness of his character. Of who he is. That's a strong claim, once again. And then thirdly. He said that those who keep his saying would never die. There would be an eternal life that they would be given, that they would receive. This is speaking, obviously, to salvation, to faith in Christ, to receiving him as one Savior. But this also speaks to this living of eternal life, living it out. Jesus is making reference, obviously, to eternal spiritual life. They were only applying it to their physical minds, to their intellect, and not receiving his words in their hearts and conviction of their sin and repentance and faith. But he's saying that those who have trusted me, who have believed my words, those who have received me as their savior, they have eternal life. And that eternal life is lived out They have a life giving principle by which they live by. Their life shows that they have the eternal life of God within them. They are living that out. They are showing that they are children of the devil, that they are acting in ways of deceit and lies, of violence and murder. He is very clearly drawing a contrast and he's defending his character. I can't help but make note here that Jesus does speak up and defend his character and his integrity. And sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes we have to answer in compassion, in humility, in the right way. But we have to defend our character and our integrity. I've been backed into a corner many times in my life for various reasons. And there have been times where I have had a little bit of wrong that I've had to apologize. There have been times where I've had a lot of wrong and I've had to do a lot of apologizing. But there there have been times where I was right and I know I was right and there was an attack upon my character and there were things being said in emails or in conversations that were downright lies about me and what I had said. And I have had to defend myself Now, I've had to do it with my tongue bleeding because I've had to bite my tongue and trying to practice the principle, a soft answer turneth away wrath and answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool as his folly deserves. Okay, But it's okay for us to defend what we believe and why we believe it and to do so with compassion and do so with humility and do so with the truth, leaning on the truth. And it's important for us to have character and for us to have integrity. Because when we appeal to the truth, when we appeal to God, we appeal to His Word, hopefully our lives demonstrate that we have lived according to the truth, that we have lived according to the gospel, that we have lived according to the character of God in truth and integrity and in character. Many times we can't, Issue a defense, because our lives are not a good testimony. They are not a good example. But when we are sometimes attacked and persecuted, it's important for us to have the character and the integrity. And sometimes we do have to be stern and be strong in our defense. That doesn't mean that we resort to mudslinging and insults, as too often professing believers do with their fingers, looking at a screen or on their phone, and often make fools of themselves and answer as fools instead of as a fool deserves to be answered. Too often we are not very good in our our answers. But here we see Christ as a model example of how to respond to false accusations, to insults and accusations against his character. He answers with the truth. He answers with integrity. He answers sternly and strongly strongly But he answers with love and compassion and humility. And he appeals, again, to God and to his truth and to revelation. He appeals to his own integrity. And that's where we have to, once again, when we have to defend, when we have to give an answer, we have to point to Christ. We have to point the accusers to Christ. We have to point point people to the truth. We have to bring them back to the Word of God. And we have to ultimately shed light on the gospel. Making God look great and making God look good and highlighting the truth of God's word and pointing people to Jesus Christ and to the truth. I've talked about a preacher in here before that I've admired for his interviews and when he's on different forums and he's been on national television and the way he conducts himself, the way he handles himself, often referencing scripture, often pointing people to Christ, to the truth, to the gospel, to their need for forgiveness and repentance. I've appreciated his testimony. I've admired that and hope that if I ever were in that kind of situation on national TV that I could respond that way. I've been disappointed recently in a preacher who stood out on the streets and was asked a question about an incident in the community, and he gave no gospel message. He made some very generalized a political statement instead of pointing people to Christ and to the gospel and to the truth and to sin and to righteousness he just gave this really mushy answer that really anybody could have given that was any secular person who just wanted to say something nice in the midst of a tragedy he could have pointed people to Christ he could have taken people to the truth he could have shown he could have, he could have declared the gospel and shown forth the character of God and shed light on the truth of God's word. Instead, he gave some generalized, milly-mouthed, mushy statement about the crime and the violence and the need for prayer and compassion and all those things that everybody says whenever there's a tragedy. And here it was, here's a preacher who claims to be a pastor, claims to be a preacher with a microphone in his face with a chance to declare the gospel and redemption through Christ and the answer for the sin and the violence is Jesus Christ. And instead of declaring the gospel, he just gave some mushy statement. Here we see Christ giving the truth, pointing to God, pointing to the authority of God, and that's where they go next. They question his authority. Once again, we keep coming back to this authority issue. Which is the biggest problem in our culture. We reject God's authority. We reject God's word. We reject his truth. And we go to what? We turn to ourselves. We turn to our own ideas and our own things and our own philosophies and our own systems. Oh, they're really upset now. These religious leaders, this antagonistic group, Christ had called them children of the devil. He said that those who believe in him will never die, implying those who don't believe in him will die. They will face a judgment. They were, saying, they were saying of themselves, we'll never be judged. We're the ones who will be judging all of you. We're the judges. And now Christ is saying, no, you're going to get judged for your sin. You're children of the devil. They're, they're angry now. But we see that Jesus brings them back to the authority of God once again. They question And they bring up Abraham. We'll have to go through this very quickly here as we come to a close before our our business meeting. But notice what they say in verse 52. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast the devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? Remember back in John 6 and 7, they had appealed to Moses, to manna, and to circumcision, and and, and the authority of Moses in the Old Testament. You think you're greater than Moses? And now who do they bring up? Abraham. We've already touched on Abraham and the sons of Abraham. Now they bring up Abraham again. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? We see here that Jesus appeals to the Old Testament. He appeals to Abraham in the truth regarding Abraham. And we have preachers today who reject, just about outright reject the Old Testament. A very popular preacher down south who basically has jettisoned the Old Testament, saying it's not really relevant for today. Well, how do you preach through the book of John if you don't believe that the Old Testament is still relevant? Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and he makes reference to Abraham and he says what here? He says down here, verily, verily, I say, actually I jumped down too far. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Jesus goes back to the authority of God. He goes back to the authority of the Old Testament, the God who gave the Old Testament, the God who called Abraham, the God who saved Abraham, and he says, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. He was glad to see it. They're really confused now. Verse 57, Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? How had Abraham seen Jesus' day? Well, first of all, he saw Christ as priest after the order of Melchizedek, who Abraham paid tithes to in Genesis 14, who the book of Hebrews refers to as Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham submitted himself to God, to Christ, in giving tithes to Melchizedek. That's how Abraham saw Christ. How else did Abraham see Christ? By faith. Hebrews 11 and verse number 10. We see that Abraham was called out. In Hebrews 11, the summary, he was called out of the land of of Ur, of the Chaldees. And Abraham went to the land of promise by faith. Believing, trusting that God had a heavenly place for him. He went to the earthly place, looking at the heavenly place, knowing that God was going to give him all of it according to his promise and his covenant. And do we realize that right now Abraham hasn't seen the whole full fulfillment of that land? But one day, Israel will have every part of that land. They're fighting over it to this day. But you look at scripture, you look at the biblical promise, the the Abrahamic covenant, and Israel has a lot of land And they are going to own it. They're going to walk on it. It's going to be theirs. A literal fulfillment of that promise is coming. Abraham just had a small plot, a burial place. But he believed. He looked ahead to the promise, the fulfillment of it. He saw Christ in his day, hundreds of years before. He saw Christ symbolically in his son Isaac, who was the seed, the chosen seed, who was the symbol of the substitutionary sacrifice. That Christ would make. As Isaac, the, lamb, the the ram was substituted. As Isaac symbolically speaks to Christ. And his sacrifice for our sin. As God gave his only begotten son. Abraham pictured that in giving his son Isaac. He saw Christ as priest. He saw Christ by faith. He saw Christ symbolically in his seed. Isaac. And he saw Christ. In the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What was Jesus ultimately saying? Abraham is still alive. Abraham saw my day. He sees this day in the presence of God. He is still alive. Christ is saying that the authority that you claim to have from Abraham. You have to recognize God's authority, the truth regarding your sin. You have to recognize, like Abraham did, his sinfulness, his unworthiness, his need for trusting Christ, for believing God in order for that to be accounted to him for righteousness, in order for him to be justified. He's saying, you claim Abraham's authority, but Abraham recognized my authority. Abraham trusted God. You must do the same. He turns the authority principle right back on them. He turns that authority question right back on them. And he appeals to them to trust Christ. And then he makes this statement in verse 58 as we come to a close. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. What is he saying? Jesus is once again declaring he is the I am. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah God. He is the God of the burning bush. He is the God that called Abraham out, who saved Abraham. He is the I am, the eternal God. That statement of deity, that declaration of deity resulted in the final points. We've seen the mistaken identity, the malicious attacks And then verse 59, murder attempted. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Have you ever dealt with somebody and they just got so angry? You could just see them physically becoming violent. It's a scary thing, isn't it? I remember facing a dad one time who was angry over something relatively trivial at school. Big dad, I mean a big dad. He was a big dude. And he towered over me, and I found out that he had been released from prison not that long before. And he had already walked into a classroom and intimidated the the teacher. And I started up the hallway when I found out he was in the back hallway. And I said, Lord, give me help. I started up the hallway, and there he was. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I told him straight up, you're not going to behave that way, you're going to get out of here, and you're not going to treat our teachers this way. And I remember that guy was not happy. I'm thankful there were a lot of other people in the office that day. But you know what that's like to deal with somebody, and they're angry, and there's a physical reaction you see in them. And what did Jesus do? is they physically looked to pick up stones, to take him and to kill him. He hid himself. And with supernatural power, he walks out through the midst of them. They were powerless because God was in control. God was protecting him. It's a reminder of how when we trust God, when we obey God, when we speak the truth and we live according to truth, God protects us. That's why we need the church. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to be under the word of God. That's why we need to be in obedience to the word of God and doing his will because the world couldn't touch him until God said, They could until he willingly gave up his life as our substitute, as our sacrifice. We'll get to that, Lord willing, as we get into John 9 and continue in our study of the book of John. But let's close in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, this great passage that, Lord, speaks to the power of the gospel, to the absolute truth of the word of God, and the strength and the courage and the bravery that only comes through adherence to the truth, faithfulness to the truth, to obedience to the truth. We thank you, Lord, for Christ and his example and his response.